0: And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 24, 7 through 11. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made you in accordance with all these words, has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. That's the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. That is indeed the word of the Lord. <laughs> sort of a question. <laughs> uh, this is the word of the Lord, and it's, uh, it's part where, we're, where you've landed in Exodus. We're in a series through the book of Exodus. Uh, we're looking at the gospel according to Moses. <clears throat> and we've arrived at sort of the, the famous place um, where the people receive The Ten Commandments, um, if you receive the law, and uh, before I go on, I just want to let you know, in case you haven't noticed, I'm a little bit under the weather, so um, if if after the service or if I've already been sort of cold to you, it's not because I don't like you, it's because I don't want you to get sick, so I may have like, I've done this to a couple people already, I just sort of made a U-turn or kind of moved away from you, Um, again, that's why I I hope to not make anybody sick, but anyway, uh, so here we are, Uh, they're, they're at this place where the people receive the Ten Commandments. Um, they've they've made a three month journey at this point. If you remember, they were, they've been rescued out of out of slavery, um, and now they're going to spend about a year at the mountain. Um, and and Yahweh is going to is going to give them uh, the, the covenant, the law, on all its stipulations and blessings. And basically, this this time here at the mountain, it's about half of the book of Exodus. They're here. Um, it's all of Leviticus. Have so you read Leviticus? Um, which I know you're, you're going to do this afternoon, as you do on your Sunday afternoons. Um, all of Leviticus takes place at the at the mountain. Um, and the first 10 chapters of Numbers is sort of a, a telling of, of this time. Um, and so what's happening, they're receiving the law from God. They're receiving the law. Uh, and one of the ways to think about this moment in this the biblical story is you sort of pan out and or pan back, pan wide. Think about, um, this particular moment in the whole biblical narrative, um, it's a little bit like, some of you are old enough to remember when we didn't use a fancy projector to sing the songs. We had transparencies. Anybody here remember those? Yeah. If, you're, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, the magic light from the, uh, from the projector used to not send an image from a computer. It used to be this sort of uh, see-through piece of plastic that that would either have uh, text written on it, the words, or somebody would write with a magic marker on there. And the cool thing at church was to see who was really good at like changing the transparencies really fast for the next word, because it wasn't just a click of the button, right? You had to roll that thing up the light and then quick, put the other one on. Um, there are some people who, like, it was a skill. But the reason I raised that is it, it's sort of, if you want a visual for how the Scripture builds its story, um, each each act of God, each major act of God through the whole scripture is a little bit like some people were really slick with transparencies, they they could lay one on top of the other, and the image on the bottom one would then be more completed or would would become something different based on the next transparency that was laid on top of it. And each transparency you laid on top would would fill out a picture that would then have more and more pieces, and each, each layer depended upon the one, of course, that came before it. The biblical story is a little bit like that. Um, it's a lot richer than a transparency, uh, but, but as a visual for what's happening. So the giving of the law is one of those layers that God is building through the whole story of Scripture. Um, so what's happening here? What is the law? Why do, why, does, why do the people receive it? Well, first, let's just look um, and get our bearings uh, in verse 4. Uh, you yourselves, this is verse 19, uh, chapter 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I, carried, uh, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God begins, before he gives the law, he begins with a description of rescuing them as being carried on eagles' wings. Uh, I was recently on a walk um, at Penny Pack, and I saw the remnants of not rescuing uh, from eagles, but uh, it's clearly the remnants of an eagle, a bird of prey snatching up uh, its prey and flying off. And all that was left on the ground is sort of just this little puff of feathers. You know, have you ever seen this? It's, it's, it's a clean snatching from the ground and all that's there is just a little, a little cloud of feathers um, and nothing more. And so you can imagine um, sort of what, what the positive version of that. If an eagle is to rescue you, You're experiencing rescue in sort of this ferocious, beautiful way. You are being snatched up out of something and and carried away out of slavery. Um, So so the image is of the people receive this, this awesome saving power. God saves them in the way that an eagle would snatch someone out of a field. So I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself And then verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my commandment. And this is just a good place to stop um, because this is a really important point uh, to address mass misconceptions about the way the Old Testament works. Uh, Chances are excellent that more than half of you came in just not because you haven't heard it before, but just because this is the default mode that we flip to. um, That we think that in the Old Testament obedience saved you, right? Now, you don't have to admit it, but somehow or another, deep down in yourself, you kind of think that's true. Old Testament God, those people had to obey God before he saved them. And I just want you to notice right here, that has never been true of God. It's never true throughout scripture that you obey and then you are saved. Always God saves, and then he calls you to his law. Then he calls you to obedience. Rescuing precedes the law. The law has never been a requirement for salvation. I carried you on eagle's wings. Now I call you to obey. Uh, And so just as an invitation to the Christian faith, a reminder that you have to lay down the idea at the door that your obedience earns your acceptance, that anything you can do, will earn God's acceptance of you. Uh, he, he saves you and then calls you to obey. Your good deeds cannot save you. So um, so just kind of pocket that away. Whenever you come to the Old Testament, you are not reading about a different character of God. I know there's some things that make that difficult, right, and, and, and to wrestle with, but, but from the door, you see the way God is, he operates here. Now, if that's true, though, so if it's true, if people are free, um, he saves them uh, by, by snatching them out, by nothing, no deed of their own, then there's a common question that follows that, um, why give the law at all? So you saved, you saved us, thank you, God. Now, why do I need you to give me this law? Um, I think sometimes, I, I know I've confessed this myself, I just kind of assume that this is sort of the way religion works, right? There's There's rules. It's just how a religion works, so that's why God gave it, uh, but, but uh, thankfully, there's more to it than that, um, so here's a clue, right? If you notice in the passage I read, um, there's lots of personal language. Uh, here, listen to how God describes uh, what he's doing. He says, I carried you and brought you to myself. If you obey me and my covenant, you will be my treasured, my treasured possession, my treasure possession. Do you have anybody in your life who you say like, that's my person, right? Like I would say, that's my an. right? And that's, you all know what I mean when I say that, right? And that, that's, there's not, there's not many people I say that about, right? Yeah, my, my treasure possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. God desires the people to be his own and that's where he's talking, all that personal language, that's where the law enters. Um, he- the law enters when God is talking about making them his own. Now, think about that a little bit. That might sound strange to our modern ears. Um, we generally associate law with sort of more formal relationships. So if you've recently got a job, um, maybe for the first time, and you realize, oh, there's this contract, right? There's this formal agreement agreement. You show up here, this is how much we pay you. These are the things you're allowed to say to other employees. These are the things you're not allowed to say, right? These are your sick days if you get those. Um, there's sort of a law, there's a contract there. Um, whenever you have to go to a new website or you sign up for something, how many times do I have to agree to the terms and conditions, right? Gotta click the button. This is not, a, this is not an intimate relationship. It's the opposite. Um, Laws, generally, we we perceive them to kind of keep our our more formalities, keep people at arm's length. So so what is God doing? How does the law lead to this intimacy, this making of his own? Um, It's helpful to remember, right, always to try to go back into, hey, reading the scripture is a cross-cultural experience, right? I'm going in, trying to get in the mind of what's happening. um, What is the way that the Israelites are living? They just came out of 400 years of slavery, that's longer than any of us are gonna live. So that's going back to how many greats, right? 400 years, generations of slavery um, in which they absorbed the customs and the worship practices of the Egyptians. Um, Sandra Richter, who writes a great book on the Old Testament called The Epic of Eden, um, she describes the Israelites at this point as uh, the the people of the Exodus, particularly in this early point, point They are polytheists considering monotheism. They don't come out of Exodus like, "Yay, God! I'm ready to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." They kind of have a memory of Him, but they're more Egyptian than anything else at this point, right? So, so they don't really know. They don't really know who God is. They know Him to be powerful at this point, right? The Red Sea—that's that, a good indicator. This God has some power. He's dominion over heaven and earth. Um, but they don't actually know what, what this God would, would name to be good or evil, necessarily. Um, how would this God compare to the many gods of Egypt? Would be an, a real question for them. So, so the law, so, that, so now come back to the law. Why the law? The law then is given as an invitation for them to know him and for them to know themselves. So, so think about, like, let's do a couple more contrasts, right, to kind of flush this out. Uh, life in Egypt would have taught them that the gods have very little value for human life. Uh, you, you, they experienced state-sponsored genocide, right, under Egypt. And by contrast, God says to them, uh, you shall not murder. I value every life. Right, t- totally different, um, in Egypt, they, would have, they lived under brutal, grinding labor, right? Remember when we, we got to that passage earlier? Um, their value as people was what they could produce in slave labor. And God says to them what? By contrast, take a day off every week and do nothing, and I am pleased to feed you. What a contrast. Uh, the Israelites. They also learn, of course, that Yahweh abhorred human sacrifice; that He was against self-mutilation and against temple prostitution. The law shows them, hey, all gods may have seemed different to you for the last—I'm sorry, distant for the last 400 years. What the law does is shows here's how I'm going to tabernacle with you. Here's how I'm going to come so close. I'm literally going to have a building that's set up so you know I'm right there. That's in the law. Here's how, when you mess up, when you fail, when you sin, here's how you make amends. So the purpose of the law, right? The purpose of the law, the law gets a bad rap, right? Uh, The law is not a moral straitjacket for the people. Uh, It's not given as an unreachable bar. The law tells them who they are and tells them who God is. And this is why, by the way, you can now read the Psalms and you don't have to be so... What, is, what are all the Psalms talking about? They're talking about how great the law is, how beautiful it is. And as a Christian now, I'm like, yeah, I guess, <laughs> right? But but the Psalms, like Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. How can the Psalmist say that? It's not a trick. It's not like, well, yeah, but we have Jesus, right? Uh, I mean, you know, there's something to that, But but... But the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. And why, why does the psalmist say that? Because in the law, the people who were once slaves learn who their God is, and it's beautiful, and who they are then by association as his people. So I just, just to invite you, if some of you are here, um, and, and by God's grace you've actually heard grace preached to you, so I, you know, I started off kind of addressing like, hey, legalism doesn't land even in even in uh, Exodus. Um, also, uh, rejecting and th- chucking the law doesn't land either, right? What we call antinomianism, which is I don't have to worry about God's law at all. Uh, what what this shows us is that is is that the solution actually for you just running from the law or not wanting anything to do if you bristle at any call to obedience. Um, the solution here is not to like, you know, just season in a little bit of legalism into your life. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what it is. Um, you, it's actually to see how the law is a gift. The law is a gift for us. It shows us who God is and how, and how to be his people. The law is, is actually a form of God's grace to his people. It's not the way that we are saved, um, but neither is it antiquated rules for us to discard. And if that makes you a little nervous, like, we'll, we'll get there, all right? Just just hang on tight. Uh, it shows us the character of God and reminds me of who I am to be. Now, uh, so by the way, if you're following along, that's the purpose of the law, right? So, so what's the, the shadow of the law then? Um, when you stand before something of immense beauty and truth, uh, when you kind of stand beneath the shadow of it, um, there's, there's two things that generally happen. Um, the first thing that happens is when you stand before something like the law, it's beautiful and true, but um, it reveals the beauty of God and who you are. Um, it actually reveals something about you. Uh, you find out something about yourself. I recently had this experience. As some of you know, we went on a World War II tour of Europe this past summer. Uh, my family and a, a, some of our extended family um, we went, we went all over Europe. We went to the Dachau, the concentration camp. We went to the Ardennes forest, all the way to Normandy to see the, the beaches, um, of D-Day. Um, that so much, so much of it was beautiful. So much of it was heartbreaking. But, but one thing in particular, I kind of stood in the shadow of it and it, 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 captivated me. It revealed something about myself. It was in one museum. There was a little plaque that's still, still, I'm still wrestling with it, you know, um, it, one little plaque, one little picture of a group of about 34 soldiers from Bedford, Virginia. And what you need to know, the Bedford, they're now known as the Bedford Boys. And what the Bedford Boys, they're, Bedford, Virginia is a little town, 3,000 people uh, in, in Virginia, rural, um, you know, in, in Virginia. And, uh, and uh, they sent 34 men to war. And on the beaches of Normandy, they lost 90% of them. In, in about in less than an hour. Now I, I tell you that story because, you know, it, I stood before that image and read about what happened to them, and I just it just it, it something something happened in which I was both in awe of the beauty of their sacrifice, the tragedy of their sacrifice, and it revealed something else about to me as well. I was also in awe of my lack of courage. I knew. I could never do what those guys did. You know, it revealed something about me. Uh, I, I never could do what those, those guys did. It exposed me a little bit. And so when you stand before the shadow of the law and you see God's character on display, you see his beauty, you see his justice, you, you then also become aware of your own inadequacy before him. Um, you become exposed. And and chiefly, what's exposed is is that first commandment um, that that, that was read. Uh, You guys know the first commandment? God God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I saved you. Right, notice notice the preamble to the 10 commandments. You are saved already, right? Um, And then the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me shall have no other gods before me so what God desires is to have you for himself as his treasure possession to have him as your only God and when you stand before that you're exposed because the central problem for the people of Israel um, is that they'll be tempted to return they want to law, as we've seen through Exodus they want to they long to return to Pharaoh they break God's law in many different ways but it always comes back to the first commandment. It's always a failure to keep God as their only God before them. Uh, Martin Luther has said that you can't break commandments t- two through ten without breaking commandment number one, right? Because uh, if, if, in order to steal, right, in order to break the commandment not to steal, uh, you have to be devoted to a God of consumption and greed, Right? You can't have Yahweh as your God. In order to to lie to somebody, you have to be devoted to the God of of other people's approval. Right, you see how this works? In order to murder, to break the commandment to not murder, uh, you have to be devoted to the God of anger. You see, and all of this is exposed in us when we stand before God's law. Sin in our life is not just the presence of a few misdeeds here and there. There's an absence of a heart devoted to God. There's a heart that finds rest, it finds meaning, it finds its identity in anything other than the God who rescued us. Uh, just, if you're having trouble identifying this in yourself, there, here's, some, here's the way idolatry works. Uh, there, there's something in you, you know, that lingers beneath the actions that are on the surface. There's, there's a captivation of your heart towards something that goes deeper than just the patterns of misdeeds you know about in your life. And, and that, that, that's a heart that's devoted to something other than God. So, so the shadow of the law, it exposes us. It exposes that, that we have hearts that are devoted to other gods. But the second part of the shadow just hang with me now, right? The second part of the shadow is when you stand in front of a shadow, you're exposed before whatever it is you're standing for, in front of, right? Um, but the other thing that happens, how does a shadow get cast? Um, there's something greater shining beyond it, right? There's something more beautiful, more powerful that is shining from behind. Um, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. So as wonderful as the law is, as we've been talking about, what the scripture also recognizes is that there's another transparency to fall. There's another layer of the biblical story that still has yet to come. There's a light that shines. And that good good thing that Hebrews is referring to that shines beyond the law is Jesus Christ. Uh, if you recall, recall what we've said about the intention of the law from the first point. Uh, It's to make a people for himself, to show the children of Israel how to be the people of God. Um, And yet, what do we say? The law reveals our weakness, our sinfulness, our addiction to idols. Um, And so Jesus comes not to declare that, hey, it's all right. The law is too difficult. Uh, Don't worry about that. I'm gonna get you into heaven anyway. Uh, What does does Jesus say about himself as being greater than the law? What does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? He's not here to abolish the law, right? He says, I do not think I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I came to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus comes as our substitute. He does for Israel and for us what we could not do for ourselves, caught in our idolatry. Jesus comes as the true Israel. He's the true covenant partner on our behalf. He doesn't come to sort of anxiously check the boxes for 613 commandments, but he lives a life devoted to the will of his father, a life of having no other gods before the one true God. And so so what does that mean for us, brothers and sisters? Um, So many things, but... But just, just one, just think about one. Because Jesus lived perfectly, he perfectly fulfilled the law given to the people of God. Now, for those of you who are in Christ, if you claim Christ as yours, you now are adopted into the people of God. You are adopted into the people of God. Listen to again to 1 Peter 2. Peter's talking to to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles. And he says to them, he says to us, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And that matters because only in Christ, only when you cast yourself at the feet of Jesus, then you can be free of the idols that bind you. You see, what when you give yourself to, to God, when he adopts you in, into his family, um, he's the only master then who won't crush you. He's the only one who will give, who as you give more of yourself to him, you'll know more abundant life. Um, okay, so, so uh, final, final point here. Um, if, if we're in Christ, if we're adopted into the people of God, um, here's, a, here's a question you might have that's been making you a little bit nervous. Are we then, now as the new people of God, are we then obligated to obey the law that's given in Exodus? How, how are we to obey, for example, the laws about temple worship? Does anybody know of any temples nearby in which we can practice the temple worship as prescribed in the Old Testament? Um, how are we to now uh, fulfill the law about what happens when an ox scores your neighbor? I don't have an ox, I don't know of any that are, that are prone to goring my neighbors, just to name a few. How, what, what then are we to do? We, Jesus grafts us in, he adopts us as his people, he came not to abolish the laws, but fulfill it, so then how now are we to live? How are we to be the new people of God? Um, well, the key, of course, how we to live, it begins and ends with, with Jesus Christ, as the center of understanding which laws and how we're to fill the law. For instance, uh, so, so think about this with me, right? And this is actually really important because, and particularly in this time and place, what's going on in the world around us. There's a lot of public misreading of the Old Testament <laughs> on TV, right? Understanding what Christians are obligated to do or not do. Um, so think about it. The laws regarding sacrifices. Because of Jesus Christ, Do I now need to go make a sacrifice before God at church on Sunday? No, I am free from that because Christ is the one and final true perfect sacrifice. He paid all our debt once and for all. So we look, so my point is, and we could go down the line, right? We could, but I look at Christ and he becomes now the key to understanding what God's calling me to obey. And scripture is really helpful with this, right? So um, Paul writes in Galatians 5 for the entire law, thank you, Paul. Jesus does this too, really helpful. Um, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. What's the one command, brothers and sisters? Love your neighbor as yourself. So we are saved, the law does not save us. We are saved and then called to obedience. And we're called to obedience as we look to and follow Christ. Um, here's, uh, here's what Christopher Wright says. He says it so well. Uh, obedience, then, is never is not ever a condition of salvation, that's what we've been saying. But obedience is emphatically a condition of mission. Only if God's people heed God's voice and keep God's command, uh, God's covenant, can they fulfill God's purpose for what God wants them to be in the world? When God's people know who they are and know the story they're in, what God has done for them and what God wants to do for, for the world through them, then the call to responsible obedience to live in God's ways is a celebration of grace, the grace of obedient, obedience responding to the grace of salvation for the sake of God's, for the for, I'm sorry, for the sake of the grace of God's mission. Um, So, brothers and sisters, God has a, has a purpose, has a purpose and a calling for this particular body in this particular time and space. And, and, and that I want you to hear, as I'm considering where, where we're at as a congregation, and as I consider the people that I hear from and how you're feeling about just the joy of being a part of God's people and walking in obedience with Him, um, here, here's two. See if you can identify yourself in here. Here's two ways I hear thinking about what it means to participate in obedience and joy in the people of God. There are some of you um, who, who feel like the church needs to return back to something that it used to be. There's a nostalgia. If only we could turn back the clock and be like the church was X number of years ago. That's what we need to reclaim. That's what we need to get back to. So that's that's on the one hand on the other hand what I hear is is an ongoing questioning about the viability of the church as an institution you're not questioning your faith you just don't know if the church is really worth it, given what's happened particularly in the past five years in America and and, and so what, what, I, what I the reason I raise those two things is that what Exodus calls us to is is a joy in being a part of God's people, as we walk in obedience to, the, to following Christ, right? So that so that our 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 experience of being a part of the body is deeper than, it's deeper and richer than. Um, I don't want to say it. It's deeper and richer than the ups and downs and the tides that we're experiencing um, in our country. Here, I'll put it another way, and then I'm gonna just pause. Um, how do, how, do we know, how do we know that in the election cycle of 2024, we won't experience a similar shattering of our community that we experienced four years ago? And, and I guess what I'm, what I'm suggesting to you is that we have to have a, a commitment to one another that runs deeper than following the ideologies of the world or that runs deeper than just even looking to like one another, although that's important. God calls us to a richer, spirit-led obedience to follow in the ways of Jesus together as a community. And if we're not doing that, brothers and sisters, then, then, then we're likely gonna experience a similar fracturing that we experienced four years ago. Now, I hope I'm making sense. I have a suspicion in the sickness of my mind because I'm a little bit under the weather that maybe I'm not, I'm not making sense. Um, so I'm just gonna pause there for a moment and I know we're running, we're running up against it. But I just want to give you guys time to reflect, as I did last time. Where, where are you hearing the Spirit through this passage? Either, either in agreement with you, or where are you hearing? Where are you, where are you conflicting? Right? If you could put those two questions up, um, uh, Jason or uh, Zach back there, that'd be great. Yeah, there we go. Um, and this could be just—I'm just, just going to give you a, couple, a minute or two now to reflect quietly. You don't have to share anything at all. But if if you'd like to share with the congregation, um, I invite you to do that. Remember just to keep it about a minute if you do share. Um, and, and also just a reminder, hey, it's okay to hear something that you disagree with. Right? That's all right. You might you might hear that. Um, but just take a minute now, reflect where what has the Spirit been saying to you uh, through the Word this morning? And, and if you'd like to share, um, you're welcome to. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And uh, as they come forward, I just want to pray this for you. I, I, this is a, a prayer you can take into your week. It's on the bottom of your outline. Um, so just join me as I pray, and then we'll we'll sing. Father, we pray that you would reveal to us the ways that we, we live.